Hey, good morning, Harvest. Pastor Cal here. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Genesis 18. Um, we're going to be kind of all over the place a little bit this morning, but we're gonna, the primary passage we're gonna look at is in Genesis 18. So open up there. And um, what we're doing right now is we're in a series that's called Because God Is, Therefore I Am. And the heart of this series is we're looking at what are the attributes of God? What is God's character like? Who is this God that created us and, and that we worship? And it's been really encouraging to my heart. I hope these characteristics and attributes have been an encouragement to you as well. And what we're going to do this morning is we're actually going to look at two characteristics of God because in scripture, they're so closely tied together, it's almost impossible to separate. And the two characteristics that we're going to look at are God's righteousness and the fact that he is a judge or, or his justice, that God is a righteous judge. So the title of this message is, Because God is a Righteous Judge, I am able to lay down my need for vindication and vengeance. Because God is a righteous judge, I'm able to lay down my need for vengeance and vindication. And I don't know if you know this or not, but actually the fact that God is righteous is one of the primary ways that God describes himself in the Bible. There are hundreds of verses or examples of God displaying his righteousness in scripture. One amazing promise we're given in Psalm 147, David writes this, he says, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. So here's what David's saying. He's saying that the Lord is completely righteous in all of his ways. And what does it mean to be righteous? Well, well this word righteous it means that in God's character, in who he is, and in what he does, there's no moral defect. He, he never falls short on anything. Everything he does is perfect and good. God does not sin, and he doesn't fall short of the standards that he creates. It means that God can fully be trusted. He never lies. He never manipulates. He never hurts people just because he wants to. He never ever goes back on his word. And I was thinking, even as I was writing this message, um, you know, when the New Testament was written, it was written in Greek culture. And the God of the Bible was in stark contrast to the Greek pantheon of gods. I mean, the Greek gods, if you've done um, or taken that in history class, you know that, that they were manipulative and they would lie, and they, some of them were evil, and they would fight back and forth, and they couldn't be trusted. They would trick humans, and they would hurt humans for their own pleasure. And, and this God that we worship, the God of the Bible, is so much better and kinder because he is righteous, and he is good, and, and he is someone that we can build our lives around because we know that he is who he says he is. And the other thing we're told in Scripture about God is that he is the final judge, that there's coming a day when God will come back and judge the world and he will hold everyone accountable. Paul promises this in 2 Timothy 4. It says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom. 
And one of the primary things that Jesus talked about while he was on earth was this reality that, that he was coming back to judge the world. He would tell parables about a, a master who leaves his servants and he would give them some money and they would be responsible for how they invested that and stewarded it. But at the end of the parable, the master would come back and hold his servants accountable. He talks in another parable about an unrighteous ruler or an unrighteous judge. And it says in the, the city where this unrighteous ruler was ruling, there was this widow that was begging and pleading for justice. And finally, this unrighteous ruler gave in and, and it's like, you know what? I, I, I'm ready for you to be done asking me. I'll give you what you want. And then Jesus says, how much more will God, who is just, who is the ruler of all the world, give to those he loves who are his children if they're consistent in praying for justice? And Jesus ends that parable by saying, well, you guys have the faith to continue to believe and pursue God and believe that he is the judge of all things. Even in the book of Revelations, we see at the end times when Christ returns, there are different judgments that happen and Jesus is on the throne and we stand before him and our actions and our words of the whole world are held in account that God is the judge, that he is the authority and the standard, not you and me. To believe in the Christian faith is to accept the reality that all people will one day stand before the Lord and give an account to the righteous judge. So there's a couple things that I think we need to understand about righteousness of God and his judgment. Here's the first, and this is really important to understand. It's in our nature. We as humans are hardwired to value these things. We value righteousness and just judgment. And then the reason that is, is because you and I are created in the image of God. And part of being created in God's image is we know that these are good and valuable things. The problem is, is we're also corrupted by sin and we live in a broken world. So we can kind of change the definition maybe of what righteousness and, and what justice are. And here's what I mean. Um, I think if you would ask most people, are you a good person or a bad person, right? Inherently, we wanna say, no, no, we're good. And there are bad people out there, but that's not me. And maybe the bad things I've done in my life, I had to, or, or that's not really who I am. And it was a moment of weakness, but all in all, I'm a good person. Most people, we want to believe we're good because we know that, that righteousness is something to aspire to and it's something we want to achieve. But our sin nature has sort of clouded our ability to understand what true righteousness even is. We also have this inherent desire for justice. We want the world to be fair. We want things to be right. And when that doesn't happen, we get frustrated. I remember um, really wrestling with this when I was growing up. And um, I don't know if this was just a coincidence or if I gravitated towards these people. But growing up, when I was in junior high and in high school, out of like the eight friends in my life who I was closest with, 
like seven of them happened to be the babies of their family. They were the youngest child in their family. And I was the oldest. I was the oldest of six. And there's this kind of universal law or principle that the oldest, the parents are the most engaged and they're the most strict with. And the youngest in the family, they always have it the easiest. And this is true in our family. Like my younger brother had it way easier growing up than I did. And it's even true in our family. Like our baby of the family is Judah. And we're way easier on him than we were on Bo or, or the girls when they were at the same age. And what happens is when our other kids complain about the fact that we're going easy on Bo, we just, or when we go easy on Judah, we just say, well, that's because we love Judah more. And that seems like a good answer for us. Our kids don't like it, but I don't know if it's because parents get tired or, or if they're like, man, this is our last kid and we just want to enjoy this stage. But it seems like the youngest in the family gets away with the most. So when I was in junior high and in high school, my parents, like I had a curfew. Um, they cared a lot about my grades. They were like, listen, Cal, you're smart. And um, here's our rule. If you get anything below a B, you're grounded and your life kind of ends. So I had to keep my grades up. I had to kind of call in and check in with my family when I was out so they knew where I was. And I had to be back at a certain time. And it seemed to me like all of my other friends, they could do whatever they wanted. They didn't have a curfew. Their folks weren't as engaged. And I remember being like, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Why are, are things so much easier for them than they are for me? And now looking back, obviously I'm thankful that my parents loved me and were engaged and, and wanted to make sure I was safe and, and were doing those things. But as a junior higher, all I could see was this isn't fair. My, my friends get to do way more than I'm allowed to do. Um, you know, I remember another way this would play out is, I don't know about you, I hated group projects in school. You know what I'm talking about where you would have to do a, a big project or a paper and you'd have to do it in groups of four? And everybody knows that there's that one person in the group who knows because it's a group project, they're not gonna have to do anything and they get, they get to skate off the work of everyone else. So whenever our teachers would assign group projects, I would instantly be mad because it's like, it's not fair. We're not gonna do equal work. They're gonna skate off of the work I'm doing. It's going to be frustrated. And I just don't like anything about it. I wanted things to be fair in how we were graded. You know, I think about the show Law and Order, and I know most of you have seen it. You can find it like on all the time there's reruns, but what is the show Law and Order, right? It's the same exact show every time. It's got the same exact plot. The, the show begins, there's a body that's found, there's been a murder, and the first half of the show is the detectives and the police working to make an arrest. And then the second half of the show is the lawyers and then the judge working to, to find justice for the crime that was committed. And how has that show been so successful for 20 or 30 years? It's because we're fascinated by justice. When something is wrong that happens, we wanna see it made right. We want crime to be punished and we want that punishment to be fair and equitable. You know, I think this has honestly played itself out in a very real way in our society over the past few weeks. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news, but a, a video appeared. It was released by, I think, a prosecutor uh, of a young man named Ahmad Arbery who was going for a run and was unarmed and was shot to death. 
and um, there had been no arrests. The, 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 the case wasn't moving quickly. But once that video footage leaked, there was kind of this upswell of, listen, we need to find justice for Ahmad. We need to find out who shot him. We need to find out what happened. And if there's arrests that need to be made and if people need to go to jail, like we need to see this happen. Our, our country was outraged because of this murder. And when we see things that are wrong in the world, it's hardwired in us to want to see those things be made right. And the reason that is, is because we are created in God's image and God is both righteous and just. And even though we are not perfect like God is perfect, we still value those same things. And here's the other thing you need to understand is that complete justice will always be elusive in our broken world. So we value righteousness, we value justice, but we also live in a broken world that is stained by sin. And one of the things I'm so thankful for, I think one of the great mercies that God has given our society is the court system and our, the police. And I'm so thankful we live in a society where there is law and order. And if a crime's committed, we can have a certain level of certainty that, that that's going to be handled and dealt with. But listen, we live in a broken world and even that system isn't perfect and people get away with things and people get convicted of crimes they didn't commit and that system is not without its brokenness. And it's not their fault, it's the fault of sin and the broken world that we live in. And this happens to us personally, right? People hurt us and they get away with it. People lie about us. I think all of us have faced some level of injustice or hurt in our life, and we've had to wrestle with, God, why did you allow this to happen? This doesn't seem fair. And all of this brings us to Genesis 18. And here's a little bit of the backstory to Genesis 18. You remember God calls Abram out of Ur and he gives him a new name. He says, your name's not gonna be Abram, it's gonna be Abraham and I'm gonna make you this great and mighty nation. You're gonna have all of these descendants and I want you to go to this land that I've given you. So Abraham grabs his family and they travel to this land and he brings with him his nephew named Lot. And um, Lot and his servants, they start to bicker with Abraham's service, servants. There's some like family drama. Lot's not being overly respectful of his uncle. The promises weren't made to Lot. They were made to Abraham, but Lot kind of wants his share and his due and they're fighting. So finally, Abraham says, listen, I don't want to fight with you anymore. And he goes, Lot, you pick which way you want to go and I'll go the opposite way. So Lot, rather than showing deference and, and reverence to his uncle who's older, he, he says, I want the best land for myself. And he settles in a valley and, and enters a city named Sodom. And it says that Abraham goes to this rocky land that's not nearly as nice and he keeps his word and he's trusting the Lord that the Lord's going to provide. Well, what happens is um, a little bit later, it says that the Lord comes and visits Abraham and these men, they, they visit Abraham and Abraham instantly recognizes that these men are special. And what the Bible calls this is a theophany where, where Jesus himself kind of makes an appearance to Abraham and meets with him. And we pick this story up in verse 20. Jesus is meeting with Abraham and here's what he says. He says, and the Lord says, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So here's what's going on. Uh, Jesus is saying, listen, 
The, the wickedness in these towns is great. There's this great outcry of their wickedness. I'm going to go down there and see what's going on. And if I need to execute judgment against them, I will. Well, that creates a problem for Abraham because his nephew's there. And even though their relationship is strained, he still loves his nephew. And so Abraham, he's going to try to strike a deal or, or make an argument to Jesus of why he shouldn't destroy Sodom and, and, and Lot and his family as a result. So look at verse 21. It says, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep it away or will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Now look what he says in verse 25. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put to right the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. See what Abraham does there? He's really putting to question the righteousness and the justice of the Lord. He's saying, listen, you are the judge of all the world. Would you really put to death those who are righteous along with the unrighteous? How, how can you do that and still be good? And he's saying, if there's 50 people there, wouldn't you save the whole city? And it's interesting, Jesus says, okay, if there's 50 righteous, I will um, spare the city. And then Abraham realized, oh man, I probably shot too high. Let me see if I can lower that number. So they start to negotiate the number and he gets the number all the way down to like 10, which is basically Lot and his family. And what's so interesting about this dynamic is that there's some things about Abraham that he gets so right about God. And then there's other things that he gets so wrong about himself and about us. You see, what Abraham understood so rightly is that God is righteous and that he's just and he is not going to execute judgment that isn't good or isn't righteous. So he's like, you can't destroy the righteous with the unrighteous, that wouldn't be good. But what Abraham was missing was the reality that there are no good people when you uh, measure that to the standard of God's righteousness right? We, we've got this issue where all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And even though we like to consider ourselves as righteous, the truth is, is there was nobody in Sodom that was worthy of the Lord's saving or who had earned an out from the wrath of God that was coming. He had an over-elevation of his own righteousness or Lot's own righteousness when confronted with the perfect righteousness of God. And isn't that a basic question that you and I wrestle with today? Like, why does God allow good, bad things to happen to good people, right? Don't you and I still kind of today wrestle with the injustice we see in the world all around us? And that's kind of the third thing we see in, in this passage is that we have a why do bad things happen to good people problem that we have to wrestle with. And I know even as pastoring this church, this is something that I've had to face. You know, I know people in our church who are faithful, who love the Lord, who are walking closely with God, who have a cancer diagnosis that is looking very, very grim. 
And I would be lying if I said that there were never moments where I'm like, God, why is this person have this awful illness that's destroying their body? It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. They're faithful. They're praying. They love you. They have a witness. Why did it have to be this person to get this diagnosis? And we wrestle with the unknown. I know of young couples who have tried for years and years and years to have children and haven't been able to, and just the grief and heartbreak that that has caused. And it's like, man, they'd be incredible parents, right? And there's so many people out there who might not be very good parents who seem to have no problem having kids. And yet these people who love you, who would raise their kids in a Christian home, why are you not allowing them to have children? I think about parents, you know, I remember even as a youth pastor meeting with parents who, who love the Lord and did their best to raise their kids in the church and, and show them Jesus Christ, have kids who ended up being rebellious and wanting nothing to do with them and nothing to do with the Lord and seeing their heartbreak. And it's like, God, I don't understand why you're allowing this to happen. These are questions that you and I wrestle with. And if God is just, and if he is righteous, we've got to come to the place where, where we trust in his goodness. And we have to realize we might not have all of those answers, but we can have certainty around the character of God. And a couple ways to kind of help rightly think about injustice we see in the world, we need to remember a couple things. Here's the first thing we need to remember is that none of us qualifies as righteous on our own. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death, that there are none righteous, no, not one. Each and every one of us, no matter how um, legalistic we are about following the rules, no matter how hard we strive, no, no matter how much effort we put in, we've all fallen short of God's standard of righteousness. We've all rebelled against God. We've all chosen to worship ourselves in our heart. We've all shaken our fists at God and how we have lived and what we have chosen to live for and to worship. And even though we may look good when we compare ourselves to our neighbors and the people around us, when we compare ourselves vertically to the God of this universe, we all fall short. This is what Abraham misunderstood. He thought there were good guys and bad guys and because Lot was better than the other people in Sodom that he should be spared. But what you need to understand is the defining trait of all of our lives is that none of us deserve relationship with God. All of us have been shown unmerited favor and grace in what God did for us through Jesus Christ. That it's not because we're good or because we're righteous, but that God gave us righteousness through Jesus Christ. None of us are righteous on our own merit. And then here's the second thing we need to remember and really believe is that justice is promised by God. In Isaiah 13, which is a prophecy about the end times. It says this, God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and I will lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. See what God's saying there? He's like, listen, there's coming a day where I'm going to hold the world accountable. No one's getting away with anything. So when we see injustice happening, they might be getting away with it now, but they're not going to get away with it forever. I'm going to lay down the arrogant. I'm going to put an end to the ruthless, those that mistreat people and hurt people and can get away with it. There's a day coming when all of that's going to be exposed and I promise I'm going to deal with it. That's a promise that should give our heart courage and comfort in the face of injustice. Listen, 
as loving and as kind and as forgiving and as patient that we know God to be as his children, he is equally fiercely righteous and just and all sin will be judged. Even if we don't see it in this life, it's going to be made right. There is hope for us as we look at the world around us. And even though it's broken and even though we see injustice, we know there's coming a day when all of that will be made right. And that leaves us with a decision that you and I need to make today. And and here's what I wanna talk about right now. And I wanna clarify something. Listen, the Bible makes it very clear that God is near the widow and the orphan and that he saves the crushed in spirit. And one of the things I think that we as Christians need to be doing is if we see injustice happening to other people, if there's brothers and sisters in Christ who are being treated unfairly or people in your life or in your community, it's important that we partner with God and do what we can to surround them and love them and help make justice happen. I think that's a good pursuit But what I wanna talk about right now is how do we navigate when we are mistreated, when we face injustice? How how are we going to handle when life towards us doesn't seem fair? I'm not talking about how we interact with others. I'm talking about how do we view this inwardly when other people hurt us? And we've got two choices of how we can handle that. Here's the first. The first is that we can try to take things into our own hands. And the way that happens is we we try to do that through taking out vengeance or seeking vindication, right? And what is vindication? Vindication is trying to clear your own name. So if someone says something about you that's not true, it's like, no, 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 that's not right. And that's not true. And I'm gonna prove to you that you're wrong, right? We try to vindicate our name. We try to prove that what's been said about us was false and that that's not a right perspective on who we are. And then vengeance is trying to get back at the person who's hurt us. You've caused me pain. You caused me sorrow. Now I'm going to make you feel the same pain and the same sorrow that I felt, right? We try to to get even or, or, or to make the other person feel what we have felt. And while vengeance and vindication, they make for incredible movies, they actually lead to really, really broken lives. And we're told in scripture explicitly not to pursue those things. In Romans 12, 17, it says this, it says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And here's what I love about this passage. What God is not saying in this is that vengeance is wrong, but he's saying we are never to avenge ourselves. And he says, God's saying, leave it to me. I will repay. I will make things all right. Trust that I'm in control and I'm the one that will defend your name. The problem is, is when we try to take vengeance into our own hands, we, we go too far and it only makes things worse. This is why James 1.20 says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Um, one of the lessons I've learned in my life is that when I've been hurt, when I respond out of anger, it never makes anything better, does it? Like how many of you have had someone lie about you or hurt you And you decided, you know what? I'm gonna pick up the phone and call them and tell them exactly what I think. Or maybe it's this, I'm gonna write them a letter 
and I'm gonna let them know exactly how they've hurt me, how they were wrong, and I want them to feel the pain that I feel. You know, I've been in that spot and I've written those emails. And then thankfully at the last moment, the Holy Spirit kind of works in my heart and I delete the email rather than send it. And I tell you what, every time I've done that, like a day or two later, I'm like, I'm so thankful I didn't send that letter. I'm so thankful I didn't make that call because it would have only made things worse because I was operating out of anger and it would have led to a bigger fight. What God's saying is, listen, I will avenge you. Don't do it yourself because you're gonna do it in a sinful way that that's going to lead to more issues. Trust that I am good and I will be the one who protects you. Listen, church, our vindication is found fully and completely in Jesus Christ. One of the beauties of the gospel is, listen, I don't have to defend my name and reputation to anyone because no matter what anyone else thinks of me, I am still equally forgiven, equally loved, equally adopted as a son of God himself through what Jesus Christ has done. And the ultimate opinion, the only opinion that matters at the end of the day is that of God's. And he says that I am righteous and I am good and I am his because I am hidden in Jesus Christ. I don't have to carry the weight of defending my reputation, even though it hurts and it's painful when that gets dragged through the mud. I can trust that the Lord will protect me and that he will avenge me. I don't have to take that in to my own hands. So we can let God avenge us. He promises to do it. It's ultimately an act of faith. So we can either take things into our own hands or we can go a better way, which is this. I can trust the one who judges justly. We can trust the one who judges justly. And I wanna close by reading this passage from 1 Peter 2, 21. And Peter is talking about Jesus. And here's what he says. He says, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Man, this passage is amazing. Here's why, because it says, not only is Jesus our example, but this is what we've been called to that when Jesus was lied about, when he was betrayed, when, when, when everything was happening to him, he didn't revile back, he didn't commit any sin because he was entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He knew that God was the ultimate authority and the ultimate judge. He didn't seek vengeance on his own. This is our example and this is our calling. And listen, we live in a world that's increasingly loud. And if you wanna go on the internet or turn the TV on, you see people yelling and fighting and arguing and defending themselves and putting others down and reviling one another. And I think one of the ways that you and I are going to shine a light for the gospel in this season is by leading in trust and saying, listen, I'm gonna do what's right. I'm gonna be faithful, but ultimately I'm going to entrust myself to the one who is righteous and is the just judge of the entire world. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. 
So here's what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna kind of make a turn and we're gonna get our hearts ready to enter the Lord's Supper and take communion. So what's gonna happen is after I pray, Taylor's gonna lead us in a closing song and then we're gonna take communion together. But what I wanna do is, is I wanna remind you of how the story ends in Genesis 18. Right, so Abraham's negotiating with Jesus and he's like, listen, if there's only 10 righteous people, would you spare the city? The problem was is Lot wasn't righteous, his family wasn't righteous, there were no righteous people that everyone rightfully could have been destroyed. But that's not what God does. And in fact, what God did is was he sent angels down to rescue Lot and his family and he drew them away from destruction and he saved people who weren't worthy, but because he loved them and because of the promises made to Abraham, he showed unmerited grace to Lot and his family. And really, isn't that a picture of the gospel? That even though none of us are righteous, that none of us are deserving, that God sent us, not angels, not messengers, but sent us his son his son who would suffer and be reviled and would die for our sin, and he would impute to us his righteousness. So the fact that you and I can say that we're righteous, it's because we've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that was a gift given to us by God. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we could have ever have done to earn that type of love, but God gave it to us freely. So even as we think of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham meeting with Lot, we see another picture of the gospel of God supernaturally setting, stepping in to rescue his people. Listen, God is righteous, he is good, and we can have assurance that whatever we're going through, if we've been mistreated, if we're being hurt, if there's injustice we're facing, God is going to make that right. So let's do this, let's um, get our hearts ready to remember the life and death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, and let's do that by praying. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you are righteous, that you're reliable, that we can trust you, that you never sin, that we never have to wonder what your motives are, that you inherently are good. And we thank, we're thankful that you see and that you're just and that you promise to make all things right. And God, we don't understand what that looks like. We don't understand how this always plays out, but we trust that you will keep your word and that you are good. So let us be a people that press into trust. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for satisfying your wrath on the cross that you would send your only son to take the wrath that we deserve, that you would give us eternal life and forgiveness. That's not something we deserve. Help us to remember how loved we are and how good you've been to us and let that be the defining viewpoint by which we view the world. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.